ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to The World Today. It's Thursday the 14th of December. I'm Sally Sara coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Today, after the storm comes the cleanup. Residents in far north Queensland assess the damage from tropical cyclone Jasper. The nation's unemployment rate ticks up, we'll bring you the latest. And wearing his heart on his shoe, batsman Usman Khawaja takes on the International Cricket Council. The ICC have told me that I can't wear my shoes on field because they believe it's a political statement under their guidelines. I don't believe it is so. It's a humanitarian appeal. I will respect their view and decision, but I will fight it and seek to gain approval. Firstly today, Kathleen Folbig, once labelled as the nation's worst female serial killer, has had her convictions quashed over the deaths of her four children. Ms Folbig, who spent 20 years in jail but always maintained her innocence, has today been acquitted by the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal. Experts say it's a landmark ruling that reflects scientific advancements and that there was never any evidence that she was guilty. Gavin Coote reports. After a decades-long fight to clear her name, Kathleen Folbig broke down in tears as the New South Wales Supreme Court quashed all four of her convictions. For almost a quarter of a century, I faced disbelief and hostility. I suffered abuse in all its forms. I hoped and prayed that one day I would be able to stand here with my name cleared. Kathleen Folbig was once known as the nation's worst female serial killer, but had always maintained her innocence. Now 56, she served 20 years in prison after being convicted of three counts of murder and one count of manslaughter over the deaths of her children Laura, Sarah, Patrick and Caleb between 1989 and 1999. She was pardoned and released from prison in June this year after a special commission of inquiry found reasonable doubt over her guilt due to new genetic and scientific breakthroughs. Part of the new evidence included the possibility that natural causes may have played roles in at least some of her children's deaths. Today, Ms Folbig thanked her supporters and advances in science for her acquittal and said the original case was stacked against her. They cherry-picked words and phrases from my journals. Those books contained my private feelings, which I wrote to myself. No one expects those type of things to be read by strangers, let alone opinionated on. They took my words out of context and turned them against me. Chief Justice Andrew Bell read the judgment to the court this morning and said the three appeal judges had also come to the conclusion that there was reasonable doubt as to Ms Folbig's guilt. It is appropriate that Ms Folbig's conviction for the manslaughter of Caleb Folbig maliciously inflicting grievous bodily harm upon Patrick Folbig with intent to do grievous bodily harm, the murder of Patrick Folbig, the murder of Sarah Folbig and the murder of Laura Folbig be quashed. Scientists and legal experts have hailed today's quashing of Ms Folbig's convictions. Eileen Baldry is an Emeritus Professor of Criminology at the University of New South Wales and was among a number of senior legal experts who'd lobbied for Ms Folbig to be pardoned. She says while pardoning her was an important step, the quashing of her convictions is rare and historic. This is a very clear case of the, a miscarriage of justice that has been recognised by the court, mainly based on evidence from the scientific community. And how much has the science 
advanced since her initial conviction and, and her, her imprisonment? Oh, significantly. The advances over the last 20 years in genetic um, identification of almost anything has advanced light years. The scientific evidence went back, the, the experts went back to looking at, was there any evidence at all of the children being smothered? And there wasn't. There was none. It was supposition that that was how the children died. And there would have been evidence which now, 20 years later, there is a much keener and more focused way of ensuring that that evidence is gathered. So right from the beginning, there were assumptions made and there was no notice taken of those who said, look, this does not point to or prove um, guilt in any way. That's Emeritus Professor Eileen Baldry from the University of New South Wales. She was speaking to our reporter, Gavin Coote. Now to the defamation trial brought by Bruce Lehrman. Former Network 10 journalist Lisa Wilkinson has denied that she put her pride and ego ahead of a fair trial for Mr Lehrman. Mr Lehrman is suing both Ms Wilkinson and Network 10 for defamation after a story on the Project TV program aired Brittany Higgins' allegations that she had been raped by an unnamed colleague at Parliament House. Mr Lehrman strongly denies the allegation and his criminal trial was aborted because of juror misconduct. No findings have been made against him. Our reporter Samantha Donovan is following the defamation case and joins me now. Sam, good afternoon. What has been put to Lisa Wilkinson this morning about Bruce Lehrman's trial? Well, Sally, she's been cross-examined by Bruce Lehrman's barrister, Matthew Richardson, and pretty much the first thing he raised with her today was the speech he gave at the Logie Awards in June 2022, when the project won a Logie for its reporting on Brittany Higgins' rape allegations. And Ms Wilkinson's speech was played in court today. In it, she said a number of things, including that it was the most important work she'd ever done, but the honour belonged to Brittany Higgins. Now, this speech, the court was reminded was given eight days before Bruce Lehrman's criminal trial was due to begin and it did actually end up delaying the trial. Mr Richardson put to Lisa Wilkinson that the speech was reckless and ill-advised and that because because the irresistible interpretation, as he put it, was that she believed Brittany Higgins' allegation. But Ms Wilkinson told the court she couldn't be in the minds of the audience. Mr Richardson put to her that she'd put pride and ego ahead of of a, a fair trial for Mr Lehrman. To that, Lisa Wilkinson said she completely disagreed. Now, at this point, the judge presiding over the case, Justice Michael Lee, asked Ms Wilkinson that in speaking about Ms Higgins' quote, unwavering courage, as she did in the speech, she accepted it wasn't a false allegation. And Justice Lee put to her that the inference to be drawn from her speech was that Brittany Higgins was making a true allegation against a guilty man. And Lisa Wilkinson accepted that suggestion from the judge. 
Sam, what else is Lisa Wilkinson being asked about today? She's also being grilled, Sally, about the steps she and the producers of the project took to check Brittany Higgins' allegations when she first came to them. In an early meeting between Brittany Higgins and the project, she told them that many of her messages, screenshots and photos had been wiped from her phone. But the courts heard Brittany Higgins showed them a photo of a bruise on her leg uh, at the time, which she said was caused by the alleged rape. Um, and Mr Richardson's been asking Ms Wilkinson about whether she thought it was strange that Brittany Higgins still had that photo of the bruise when she'd lost so much other material uh, from her phone. Lisa Wilkinson's told the court she didn't really understand what Brittany Higgins had been saying about her phone going black, uh, as it was described, and it, it did concern her, but she told the court she didn't think of checking the metadata because she admitted she isn't very tech savvy. She told the court she thought it was curious that Brittany Higgins seemed to think her phone might be being monitored, but she told the court the issue with the phone didn't give her concerns about Brittany Higgins' credibility. And Sally, Lisa Wilkinson's evidence to the court is expected to continue for the rest of today and tomorrow. That's Samantha Donovan there. You're tuned in to The World Today. The clean-up from tropical cyclone Jasper is underway across far north Queensland. The system spared the region from major damage, but it left roads and power lines cut. Now, the now tropical low is still delivering heavy rain in some areas, with hundreds of millimetres already recorded around the Daintree north of Cairns since yesterday. For some who've lived in the region for a while, Cyclone Jasper was just another cyclone. But for others, it was a very long night. Stephanie Smale has more. As Cyclone Jasper swept across the far north Queensland coast, Gina Sigaris watched sheets of rain and high winds sweep through her backyard. It was her first cyclone after moving to Daiwan, near the now swollen Daintree River, from Sydney three years ago. It was um, pretty scary because um, you didn't know what, what was going to happen and how bad it was going to be. It was, yeah, lots of wind, uh, trees falling over, lots of rain. But thank God the trees weren't too close to our home and business, so nothing had actually fallen um, onto the property. Is it still very wet there? Um, now, now the rain's coming again. I might get back inside. She's taken a quick look outside to find some trees down and damage to a sign, but otherwise things look OK. She says there were mixed feelings in her home as she waited the Category 2 cyclone out with her husband and their five children. And the kids were pretty excited about it. It's their first cyclone up here, so they were watching all the trees from inside. And I think I was probably the most scared in the family, to be honest. Are you expecting to be isolated for a while? Yeah, we are pretty isolated here, so we've got the ferry, which will probably be, I, I don't know how long that's going to be out of action. So that was closed all day yesterday and the day before from about 2pm. And I don't know when it will reopen. Gina Sigris says some Daintree locals were relaxed about Cyclone Jasper. Others weren't. Another local had dropped in and she's like, look, uh, Cyclone's not on my bucket list. I'm out of here. So she got out. Other locals got out as well. 
Heavy rain, fallen trees and power cuts are the biggest issues across the region this morning. There were concerns for the tourist town of Port Douglas, north of Cairns, but it's been spared major damage too. Tara Bennett from Tourism Port Douglas and Daintree is expecting the hub to be up and running by the weekend. I mean, there are quite a few trees down and power lines. That won't take long to clear. I mean, north of the Daintree River... I know there'll be quite a lot of trees down. However, most residents there travel with a chainsaw in their car as, as normal. So I know everyone will be out and about supporting each other. The Deputy Premier-in-waiting, Cameron Dick, says Jasper has caused widespread blackouts and crews are working to get the lights back on. There are about 40,000 homes and businesses without power in the far north, including around 25,000 or so in Cairns. That means a quarter of homes and businesses in the affected areas have no power this morning. Authorities are keeping a close eye on major flooding in the Mossman and Daintree rivers, and flash flooding could be a threat too. 40 people left their homes at Mossman as the river levels rose. Queensland State Disaster Coordinator Shane Schleppy says another group were moved out too, clarifying earlier reports they'd been on their roof and had to be pulled to safety. Uh, one house was uh, inundated, we know that um, at this point in time, and a number of vehicles were also inundated. Uh, but we've got our crews out this morning doing those assessments. The police were able to walk uh, with fire, walk those 12 people out from the street and take them to the Mossman Library. And he's urging anyone who can stay put and delay their clean-up to do so. As people now come out of their house to start assessing the damage, can we please ask you to be very cautious about those hazards? And if you don't need to be outside, if you could give us another 12 hours to allow the emergency services to do their job and make it safe for people. That's Queensland State Disaster Coordinator Shane Schleppi ending that report from Stephanie Smale. Pacific Island nations say they're disappointed by the final agreement struck at the United Nations Climate Conference. The COP28 summit in Dubai has ended with a deal that commits nations to limiting emissions but not to ending the use of fossil fuels. David Sparks has more. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. <laughs> After two weeks of negotiations involving 200 delegates, COP28 has ended with an agreement. The summit president, Sultan Al-Jaber, declared the deal on a final text a success that lays the foundation for a transition away from fossil fuels. And you, my colleagues and friends, you did step up. We have the basis to make transformational change happen. The parties agreed on what's called the global stock take, with the aim of keeping global warming under 1.5 degrees. It's the first time in the conference's 28-year history that countries have pledged to begin moving away from fossil fuels. Dan Yannick Jorgensen is Denmark's Minister for Global Climate Policy. Almost 200 countries have said we need to move away from oil and gas. We need renewables instead. And this is uh, fantastic. But the agreement doesn't call for fossil fuels to be phased out completely, something many countries had been pushing for. The outcome is a disappointment to small island nations who stand to bear the brunt of climate change, mainly through rising sea levels. Samoan Anne Rasmussen is the lead negotiator for the Alliance of Small Island States. The questions we have considered as the Alliance of Small Island States is whether they are enough we have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual, 
when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Australia's Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, says the final agreement is a call to action. The federal government has made a commitment to reach 82% renewable energy generation by 2030. Kane Thornton is CEO of the Clean Energy Council. He says Australia is on track for the task ahead. There's a fair bit of work to do. We, we do have a history of dependence on fossil fuels, but that's changing rapidly. So yeah, I think this agreement sends a signal that we're just going to see a, a faster push towards renewables, I think, over the next five years. And he says investors are watching closely. This COP, there was an enormous um, business contingent there, which included all of the, you know, the major investors, banks, uh, equity investors from right around the world. They were all there. Any investor, um, you know, following this and paying attention, will see a really clear signal, and that's a signal that says uh, we need to be getting off coal, gas, oil and all fossil fuels. And I think if you're looking to make a new investment, um, you know, investment in these sorts of projects have a 20-year or 30-year life, uh, I think people would be right now reconsidering their investments. It's now up to each member country to develop a climate action plan by 2025 to meet the new commitments out of this conference. David Sparks and Eliza Getsy with that report. There's been a surge of confidence on the Australian share market after the US Federal Reserve signalled its aggressive interest rate hiking strategy is probably over. After 18 months of rate increases, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is now talking about interest rate cuts as inflation in the United States steadily slows. I spoke a short time ago with our senior business correspondent, Peter Ryan. Peter, good afternoon. How significant is this turnaround from the Federal Reserve given a long period of rate rise pain in the United States? Well, Sally, it's a very big change in tone and language from the Federal Reserve and the softer or dovish signals saw Wall Street surge. The Dow Jones Industrial Average had been flat before the rates decision, but when Jerome Powell not only left rates on hold but signalled they'd probably peaked, shares rocketed to close 1.4% higher, which is why stocks in Australia and Asia have also taken taken off. Now, even though annual inflation in the US at 3.1% is still well above the 2% target that the Fed has, the statement was explicit that inflation had eased over the past year and now Fed officials see rates being lower by the end of 2024 and economists are now pencilling in three quarters of a percentage point in rate cuts. Fed Chair Jerome Powell told reporters he's still on alert about inflation, not declaring victory, but he signalled the chance of another rate hike looks slim. We believe that we are uh, likely at or near the, the peak rate for this cycle. People generally think that we're at or near that and, and think it's not likely that we will, will hike, although they don't take that possibility off the table. The next question, which is when it will become appropriate to begin dialing back the amount of policy restraint that's in place. Uh, we still have a ways to go. No one is declaring victory. That would be premature. So we're, we're moving carefully in making that assessment of whether we need to do more or not. That's Jerome Powell there, the chairman of the US Federal Reserve. 
Peter, if interest rate cuts are on the horizon in the US, what does that mean for rates here in Australia? Well, Sally, like the Federal Reserve, Australia's Reserve Bank will be busily watching the data. And late this morning, there was an update on monthly employment. Seasonally adjusted, the Bureau of Statistics says the jobless rate rose to 3.9% in November, upwardly revised to 3.8% in October, despite 61,000 new jobs being created. Now, this is because the participation rate surged to a record high of 67.2%, which means there are more people out there looking for work. But it is evidence that after 13 rate rises since May last year, steam is coming out of the labour market as the economy grinds slower, which is what the RBA wants to tame inflation. And yesterday's mid-year budget update sees the jobless rate rising to 4.5% next year. Now, the biggest factor that will influence any rate rise in February will be quarterly inflation out on January the 31st. If that comes in hot, expect a February rate hike. But for now, money markets only see a 10% chance of that. That's Peter Ryan there. Finally today, Australia's domestic summer of test cricket is getting underway today with the country's men's side taking on Pakistan in Perth. Batsman Usman Khawaja had planned to wear shoes bearing slogans referring to human rights but he's been told that he can't by international cricket's governing body. Kawaja says he'll respect the ruling but plans to contest it with hopes of wearing the political shoes later in the summer, as Oliver Gordon reports. The slogans read, Freedom is a human right and all lives are equal, handwritten on each shoe. I've noticed what I've written on my shoes has caused a little bit of a stir. Australian test batsman Usman Khawaja took to the social media platform Instagram to pose a few simple questions following the widespread interest in his footwear. I won't say much. I don't need to. But what I do want is for everyone who did get offended somehow is to ask yourself these questions. Is freedom not for everyone? Are all lives not equal? Kawaja was filmed sporting the messages, which referenced the severe loss of civilian life in Gaza on his shoes at training in Perth this week. He was later told by cricket's governing body not to wear them at today's test match against Pakistan. The ICC have told me that I can't wear my shoes on field because they believe it's a political statement under their guidelines. I don't believe it is so. It's a humanitarian appeal. I will respect their view and decision but I will fight it and seek to gain approval. Federal Government ministers have weighed in on the controversy. Sports Minister Annika Wells is backing the batsman, saying she doesn't believe the messages contravene ICC rules, outlawing potentially divisive messages on clothing or equipment. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has also chimed in. All lives are equal and they should let him wear the shoes. And the Treasurer says the messages have been shared in good faith. He spoke this morning on RN Breakfast. So I don't think it's an especially controversial statement and I find it unusual, frankly, uh, that people want to dispute that. You know, the lives on one side of a conflict are not worth any more or any less than the lives on the other side of a conflict. Uh, I know Usman Kawaja, he's a friend of mine, uh, and I know him as a champion of people of all faiths. Uh, champion of people of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, Hindus, Christians. Uh, and the second most important thing about Usman Khawaja is that he's a wonderful, wonderful cricketer. The most important thing about Usman Khawaja is he is a wonderful, wonderful human being. Not everyone's backing the move, though. 
Former Test all-rounder Simon O'Donnell has told sports radio station SEN that while he respects Khawaja's beliefs, the batsman has no right to, quote, instil those onto others while representing Australia. It's not the first time a war in the Middle East has spilled onto the sporting field. In 2014, England batsman Moeen Ali was warned to stop wearing wristbands showing support for Gaza during a test match with India. Cricket commentator Jim Maxwell says Kawaja's advocacy places sporting authorities in a tricky spot. Well, whether he's justified or not, um, he, he's, do, he's doing what more and more people in sport are able to do because... Um, they've got the opportunity. Uh, in the past, um, someone, some of them wouldn't have even thought of going down this road. So I admire him for, for what he's doing. Um, and um, the, the, the pro- problem with this, as we've seen in the last few years, is whereas on the one hand, uh, the Black Lives Matter issue uh, seemed to get a tick in the box from the administrators, this one doesn't. So um, I don't want to get too busy into the, the yes and noses of it uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm a cricket commentator, but um, it tends to polarise the audiences as this issue is doing at the moment we are talking about. He has the opportunity to appeal the decision and has uh, flagged that later on in the summer he might uh, don the field with these messages on his shoes. Do you think that the ICC will eventually allow Usman Khawaja, to wear these statements while playing? I'd be very surprised. It's too too much of a meaty issue just at the moment. I, I really don't think the ICC are bent in that direction because, as I suggest, it's such a polarising issue at the moment. It's just too sensitive. Today's first test of the summer is the first of a three-test series against Pakistan. That's Oliver Gordon. And that's all from the World Today team. Thanks for your company. I'm Sally Sara. Stay safe. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Are you an AI boomer or doomer? Do you think artificial intelligence will make the world a better place? Or are you worried it could destroy our way of life? Today, Professor Toby Walsh, the chief scientist at UNSW's AI Institute, on the recent fight over AI in Silicon Valley and the latest innovations we need to know about. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.